I acknowledge that the land I work, live, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. To celebrate this special Halloween interview with Chris Barasa, we're partnering with Red Hook Studios to give away five copies of Darkest Dungeon. Stay tuned until the end of the interview to hear how to enter. Welcome to Vanix Fan, uh, episode 53. Uh, I'm Doug Vandele, and I'm joined today by the co-founder and creative director of Red Hook Studios, home of one of my favorite games of all time, Darkest Dungeon. So, uh, Chris Burasa, how's it going, Chris? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, for those that don't know, why don't you tell us a little bit about Darkest Dungeon? Sure. Uh, Darkest Dungeon is a roguelite RPG for... Uh... PC and console. Um, the central kind of differentiating factor about it is that it deals with like the stress and kind of psychological toll that adventuring takes. So we kind of asked the question, what would happen if imperfect heroes had to spend, you know, so many hours killing awful monsters and over time the stress builds up and as the player, you've got to kind of manage them through their combats and then take them back to town and kind of give them, uh, you know, let them blow off steam with drinking or gambling or praying or meditating. And um, essentially, it's kind of like a medieval hockey coach simulator in a way. Um, you've got I never thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is because I mean, you're the town is persistent and you manage everything. Um, and you've got like your your A line and your B line, and you're constantly cycling guys out because they get sick and stressed, and you know they develop afflictions and get hopeless and masochistic, and so you're constantly kind of juggling the human factor while killing horrible monsters. Yeah. So tell us about how you and uh, Tyler Sigmund, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, created the game. Tyler's a co-founder of the company as well. He's a design director, and uh, the game kind of started. I had the name scrawled down in a sketchbook like a long time ago. I would just take a sketchbook when I rode the bus to whatever uh, job or appointment I was going to. And uh, it kind of just get bore out of this idea that uh, heroes and, and power in games is oftentimes represented by visually by gear. So like the size of your shoulder pads or the size of your sword uh, is uh, indicative of how powerful you are in the world. And I felt like that's kind of a fundamentally, it's a gamey trope and I, and I love games, so I'm all cool with it. But fundamentally it's absurd because I realized that like if you know a shambling corpse thing was coming at me, you could give me the most decorated, gilded, gem encrusted sword in the world and I'd still be afraid. And so this idea that what really matters is the sword arm and the willingness to fight, not really the gear that you have, you know, the trappings of being a hero. So. We sort of started from that kind of principle, and we thought a lot about um, policemen and firemen and soldiers and, you know, real people who get lauded as as heroes, but, you know, may have, you know, crippling kind of stress-related ailments as a result of their experience, or they might cope with the job by, you know, the hard-drinking, you know, detective and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So so this, this idea that everybody kind of has a little bit of dirt under their nails and that... Uh, you know, as a as a manager or leader, you're you're not always able to direct action um, to your liking. You can set standards and goals and set targets, but you can't force people to behave a certain way. So we we kind of mixed all those influences and ideas up, and and that's kind of ultimately what bore out the game. And it's uh, clearly inspired by the works of H.P. Lovecraft and the cosmic cosmic horror genre. I think it's wrapped in it, you know, like definitely dripping in it. But 
it didn't come from that o- literature. Oozing, some might say. Yeah, yeah, oozing, you know. Uh, there are definitely some Lovecraftian postules growing on it, but, uh, you know, it wasn't born out of a desire to live in that Cthulhu mythos or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, that was kind of just a, a great way to uh, place to kind of set the the story of flawed heroes, you know, dealing with all this stuff was to really amp up the cosmic awfulness and who better to reference than Lovecraft for that. The your art style in the game reminds me quite a lot of Mike Mignola, Hellboy, similar themes as well with mm-hmm. the occult and everything. Uh, was that your style before you started the game, or did you lean into that for the the atmosphere? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, no, absolutely not. I didn't. I didn't work like this at all. I'll never get it out of my system now because um, it's been six years of doing it. But uh, I was a concept artist and art director and freelancer and I, I worked in all kinds of different styles you know mainly with sort of the traditional fantasy rendering you know specular chips out of the shoulder plates of medieval guys and that kind of thing and really real painterly um the the art direction for this game was born out of a couple things not least of which was if i could work quickly i could get it done and we could ship the game uh if i was to hold myself to a standard of like, is every asset in the game the best thing I've ever drawn? If that was going to be my internal barometer for success, uh, I'd never get past the first thing, like the first treasure chest. I'd still be drawing it now because it'd never be good enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So a consistent sloppiness was kind of desirable in that sense where I could give myself permission to sort of like not not phone it in, but uh, give myself permission to kind of move through the work and, and gauge my success based on um, volume and consistency. Uh, the style itself, uh, yeah, I looked at a lot of Mignola. Um, I looked at a lot of Guy Davis. Uh, he does a, a book called, or he did a book called The Marquis, which is exceptional. Chris Bachelot, I grew up reading a lot of his, uh, his X-Men stuff. And uh, I felt like the hard angles um, kind of represented the uncompromising choices that players would have um the the pooling blacks were kind of meant to evoke this idea that everyone's getting swallowed up by darkness stress negativity so there was a lot of deliberate decision making that went into sort of where i pulled my influences from um medieval woodcuts and albrecht Durer and that kind of thing uh, because i wanted the game to feel like it was almost authored in the time it was describing i wanted the game to feel old a little bit uh, or at the very least timeless, so that you could pick it up years after it had come out and it would still feel engaging and, and fresh and, and kind of cool, you know? Well, I definitely picked it up uh, the first time because of the art style. Uh, my friend actually uh, was looking through my comics and saw Hellboy and he wasn't into comics and didn't know about them. He's like, oh, this looks like Darkest Dungeon. Oh, God, like, no. <laughs> and I was like, there's a game that looks like that looks like Hellboy? Yeah. And... uh I got into it that way, and then I just fell in love with it. I, I love sort of uh, occult and dark themes. Occult horror is probably my favorite genre of film. Yeah, me too. I, well. I think so too. I, I don't like like I'm I'm a huge horror movie fan. I've, I think I've seen everything on Netflix, even the trash. And I don't like the the torture porn kind of hostile, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. I just like a scary idea, and oftentimes it's the low budget ones that that are actually play with. Um, conceptual horror as opposed to just like effects driven or uh slasher type stuff so i'm a huge huge fan of that it's funny because when i first saw 
Mignola's stuff, it was in an issue of X-Force, which Rob Liefeld was drawing at the time, like back in the it, 90s. It could be more different. Yeah, and so it was like a flashback. He did like the middle bit of the comic. So like Rob Liefeld did the first couple of pages and the last couple of pages. And the middle was this guy I'd never heard of, Mike Mignola. And I was so mad because I like loved Rob Liefeld. I was so pissed off that right in the middle, like, you know, I only get it every month. Yeah. And it arrives in the mail because I didn't have a comic shop in my hometown. So I had to get it sent in from like Edmonton. And uh, there it was, it's comic day. And then the whole thing is like this awful black stuff, you know, and like real limited facial expression, no detail, no pouches and uh, no cybernetic arms. You know, I was so pissed off. And then I put it away and then I came back to it because I was like frustrated with why I didn't, I wanted to understand why I didn't like it. And I came back to it and I looked at it and I was still put off, but kind of intrigued. And I put it away and I kept coming back to that same issue again and again. And I think it was because it really challenged what had become my fundamental assumptions of what comic book art was. Um, I was really immersed in like the image comics, high polish, high detail, high rendering kind of stuff. And uh, it was such a departure from all of that. It was a real awakening for me and it actually like prompted me to start looking outside the mainstream at like all different other kinds of comic books and art styles and really start to embrace that. So it was kind of a pivotal moment for me. So it was great to kind of go back and I don't work in comics, I work in games, but express that love in a different medium. Yeah, totally. It actually uh, reminded me how I discovered Mike Mignola was also a guest spot in a Goon. Right. Yeah, Eric Powell's yep. one as well. But those styles lend... Uh, lend themselves to each other a, a lot more closely, I think. Did you always have Wayne June in mind for the narrator? <laughs> um, it's funny how that came together. I was freelancing uh, about a year before we decided to, to really go for it and try and make an indie game. And I would listen to these Lovecraft audiobooks like super late at night while I was like pounding out on deadlines and they were all narrated by Wayne June. And I loved it. I sent him an email one time just saying like, hey, like you're my kind of my late night voice that, that keeps me up and keeps me focused. And he's, you know, sent Barrow. Thanks, man. You know, kind of thing. And uh, so a couple of years later, we uh, we decided, OK, if we're going to take this plunge, you know, we're not young men. <laughs> so we have like a higher cost of living and I have a mortgage and uh, one child at the time. And uh, we wanted to be sure that we weren't going to launch and flop abjectly so we thought the first thing we should do is make a trailer to sort of take a barometer of the appetite on the internet for the game we wanted to make um and if it got no traction at all then we would have to you know reasonably rethink our our strategy so um i put together the the first uh, terror and madness trailer uh, i did the art and i and i wrote it and like well we need a we need a narrator for this for this trailer conventional game trailer wisdom is that you should have like flying text and announce new features every three seconds and have all these different cuts and like there's a whole you can look on it online there's all these people offering advice and tips and i just felt like that was so abrasive and markety that it didn't respect the spirit of what we wanted to create so i threw all that advice away and i wanted to do something slow and ponderous and super tone heavy and uh, with no subtitles or text at all <laughs> And uh, yeah, we decided we need a narrator. I wrote it um, and then we were sitting around, Tyler and I, and he's like, well, what about that guy you used to listen to who read audiobooks? I was like, well, like, I mean, I guess I could email him. Probably won't want to do it. 
sent him an email and he's like, yeah, sounds good. So he read it. And then, uh, we were in Richmond at, um, Jeff from power up audios place. They do all the audio mastering and sound effects in the game. And, uh, we were cutting the final thing of the trailer together and we had Stuart Chatwood's music come in. The visuals were there. And as soon as that audio track like kicked in, everything just, you, you could almost hear it click. Um, and we just looked around and I looked at Tyler. I'm like, well, now we need a narrator in the game. Like there's no way around it. It's too, he's just perfect and enmeshed in the product itself. And, uh, that was how the character of the ancestor got written. And it was all based around just how, how well that first trailer gelled. I was told that once Frost Cricket was a humble prefect of the celestial city, but when Wanderlust whispered her name, she left to travel the earth on her journeys inspired many stories, and those stories inspired other stories. Some idiot wrote them all down, and ever since, fools have been telling and retelling the tales of Frost Cricket. Hear them all on the Cave Goblin Network. It's interesting that there was already quite a lot of development of the game before even the ancestor or the narrator idea, because I see the narrator as so pivotal. Totally. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't want to characterize it as there was a lot of stuff done in the game. Like the trailer was the first thing we did. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, we were fleshing out the game design and that kind of thing. But there was no mention of needing a narrator until that trailer kind of hit its stride, and then there was no going back at that point. So, I wrote the character for him, um, and uh, he's been a part of our lives ever since. Was the narration aspect at all inspired by Bastion? No, although they did a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, and I had played Bastion. Uh, like I said, we never set out to to want or need a narrator. It was just that we found the perfect narrator. Yeah. And so it's kind of like when you, when that recipe clicked, it's like, well, we have to have a narrator now. And as a result, I went back and looked at Bastion again w through the eyes of being open to an influence. You know what I mean? Um, the first time I beat Bastion, I was like, oh, that was a cool game. I really enjoyed it. The artwork is amazing. Gen Z does the artwork. It's her. She's amazing. Um, you should have. You should be talking to her. Um, is she in Vancouver? Uh, no, I think she's in San Francisco. I was set up for a moment. I don't know why I asked. Yeah, but. she's incredible. So yeah, I, I enjoyed Bastion the first time through, but then the, I went back and like watched, you know, like Let's Plays or YouTubes of it. Um, specifically, now thinking, okay, well, now that we've decided we need a narrator, how did they do that? You know. Yeah, it's the they're the only two games that. I can think of with uh, narration over just context, yeah. Rather than at story points in the game, like uh, when you when you fire up the torch when the light goes out, etc. So I was going to ask what your background uh, is, but I think you mentioned mostly game dev art. So can can you uh, expound on that a little bit? Sure. I um, I have a degree in sociology. Oh, there you go. Which left me fundamentally unemployable. Um, I lived for a year in a tent in Australia and, uh, that was also unemployable. <laughs> Whereabouts? Uh, all over. I mean, I spent three months in Sydney working at golf courses and, and surfing and stuff at Bondi and what's, what's the other one? Um, I should know. Terramatta or Tiramisu or anyway, a bunch of those beaches all along the city there. And then, uh, just started backpacking and kind of traveling around. Did it you make awesome. it to the West Coast at all? Didn't make it. I cut down through the middle because I wanted to see, you know, No Man's Land of Cooper yeah. Pedy and the rest of it. Um, I always wanted to go back. I had such an, everyone was amazing, like total strangers. I had uh, 
yeah, a bunch of red wine at this university professor's house one night. Like everyone is so welcoming. It was really cool. Cool. Yeah. Good country. Yeah. Well, I, I like it here. Uh, yeah. I left there mainly for the heat. But, I can um, understand that. I am not a heat guy. So. And West Australia is like the hotter part of uh, of the country. Is that where I you're come, from? I'm coming from Perth. Oh, okay, cool. It's the most isolated capital city on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, closest other capital city is Jakarta, uh, Indonesia. Right. But yeah, you were you were saying so uh, you were backpacking around Australia. Yeah, and I had a sketchbook with me, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, my dad was actually a territorial court judge in the NWT growing up, and I always had this idea that I would be a lawyer. Um, but I had to confront this reality that I didn't want to be a lawyer so much as I wanted to des- deliver like hot takes and zingers in court. Um, I didn't want to do any of the legwork or the research. I just I liked the performative aspect of being a lawyer, like a TV lawyer. Yeah, yeah. I would I would love to be a TV lawyer. Maybe one day I can still make that happen. But uh, I uh, I came out here and I did a, a eight month animation program and I applied to SFU for criminology. And so after the eight months, they accepted me to criminology or I could do my second year of this animation program. So I thought about it and I decided to double down on the artwork. And I hated animation. Uh, I, I hated 3D. I'm not a technical man, um, but, but I really like the concept art and painting textures. And I, and I need to be creative to be happy. So that kind of called to me. And uh, I made like a 2D side scrolling game like before there was an indie game scene with uh with a friend of mine dana forche um and it was you know just was pretty juvenile but it was fun and uh that led to like a gig at a local studio and then i just kind of worked my way you know in the industry from there artist and then lead artist and art director and i spent a lot of time at backbone entertainment which closed i moved to propaganda uh games and worked for like three and a half years on a pirates of the caribbean game that got canceled studio closed um yeah did a stint at microsoft game got canceled studio closed uh so i have a like a very i have a varied career and a a rich history of cancellations and i kind of hit a point where i was like you know i've been an art director in tv i've done all these different roles in games if something's gonna fall out from underneath my feet i'd like to be intimately acquainted with why and so i want to try and kind of do it my own way like this didn't feel personal enough i want next time i fail i want it to hurt oh yeah like yeah. i want that slow knife you know from yeah. the end of dark night rises or whatever right between the ribs i want to feel it but thankfully i, I it, it didn't go that way so yeah and and thankfully the uh the world got darkest dungeon out of it so i'm insanely excited for uh darkest dungeon 2 which was uh announced february 19th i believe can we talk about that a bit tiny bit tiny bit yeah oh you see you <laughs> i seem had to hesitant. get super cagey right <laughs> um yeah we're not saying a whole lot yeah uh we have grown the studio dramatically uh in response to the game that we want to make i can say that uh, everyone's working really hard i can say that it's the darkest dungeon too i can say that hmm uh, so it, it looks like it's possibly inspired by the Mountains of Madness, uh, or at the Mountains of, of Madness. I really like Antarctica as a basis for occult theories mm-hmm. and, and things. Like, uh, Have you seen the pyramids down there? In Antarctica? Yeah. The non-fictional pyramids? Yeah. No. Well, I mean, it's like 
a disproven conspiracy theory, but I don't buy it. You don't um, buy the disproving. I don't buy the disproving. Oh wow! So if you look at satellite you're deep photos, into this thing. Man. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And like uh, the bloop as well is not too far from there. And did you see this in the news recently? Um, we've gone way off off track here, but that's, cool. um, that's where the good stuff is. They some scientists found like an undiscovered life form in Antarctica. Um, Isn't that just the movie The Thing? I know that's <laughs> Wilford Brimley actually tweeted like I wouldn't do that if I were you because they were playing with it and it's this like kind of slug monster. Oh my god! Let's see. I want to see if I can find. That's it. like Boston Dynamics making robots straight out of Black Mirror that kill everyone. Yeah, exactly. New life form found in a antarctica let's find the image here uh, so they found like a shoggoth or something something like that cool add it to the list of things i'm stressed about <laughs> it's just inspiration for the game <laughs> so I, I i did see um uh in a uh, a video that was went into a bit of a deep dive on what we can glean from that initial teaser trailer i saw that video yeah. that video is amazing it's really good um and uh, apparently they got a lot of stuff right a lot of stuff wrong obviously you can't say what is right and what is wrong but um what is going to be that you can say now will be different from the first game well uh okay here's here's what i can say and i'm not being cagey out of a, some like marketing mandate or anything because i mean we run the studio so i mean i could essentially break down the game design right here and now but i think we've been really well served by being quiet until we have something that we want to say very loudly yeah. just as a studio that's kind of how we ended up doing our early access patches our launches um and i and i like that I, you know tyler and i both really like that approach it's definitely flies in the face of uh some other indie studios that i know um who are doing amazing work and very successful but very transparent they, a lot of streaming a lot of showcasing where things are at and i guess we just we just play things a little bit more close to the chest i think part of that is driven by a desire to surprise because i think that's endemic to a successful horror experience is a little bit of uncertainty and unknown um so darkest dungeon 2 is I don't we're going to feature the same characters you saw them in the in the in the teaser um but it can't be the same game it has to be uh like a better call Saul to Breaking Bad like yep. it can't live in the shadow of its older brother there are many examples of of breakout uh, indie hits and I'm almost sheepish to to call uh, our game that but uh, the the numbers are good and 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 I don't I'm not trying to self congratulate or anything, but there's a lot of examples of very successful first over the wall indie games whose follow up titles or sequels that don't sell well or captivate the audience in the same way, and it's the latter that concerns me the most. Um, I would take fewer sales but still have a an important impact. Like I, I would accept that deal, um, and so I don't want to disappoint and I don't want to be predictable. And so we we thought a lot about that as we were crafting, you know, what will ultimately become Darkest Dungeon 2. Um, it was important to us, even internally, to not retread the same ground. And it was also important, in a way, to um, make ourselves afraid again. <laughs> there was a lot of fear and uncertainty for us on the dev team. Uh, you know, we bootstrapped the first game. None of us had very much money. And I think that can sometimes, it's very stressful and I'm not recommending it as a course of action in anyone's life who might be listening, but there is value in living on that on that edge. 
And I think that if we were to just retread the same ground, I don't think we would be as as developers quite as like viscerally engaged and, and need it to succeed the same way. And so it was important for us to try some different things. Um, and geopolitically, I think that, you know, we were in a very comfortable place in 2015 um, yeah. when, when our game came out. And I think there was an appetite to have some fun with some melodrama. And, you know, um, we talked about the art style a little bit and a, a piece of it that, that we didn't mention is that, you know, there's a little bit of cuteness in, in that game. Like there's a little bit of, they're almost adorable, those little guys. You know, the monsters yeah, are like... dark like, chibis. Yeah, yeah. And so you can have fun with their melodrama a little bit. It helps make it palatable in a way. And I don't know that that same appetite's going to be there, <laughs> especially, uh, you know, let's say in, uh, you know, when we're, when we're planning to, to launch. And it's going to be a little while. We're in, we're in the middle of development. We announced early so that we could tell our fans what we were doing. We didn't announce to sort of set the stage for an imminent release. But I don't know that the same appetite is going to be there for people to really want to enmesh themselves in, in nihilism and, and despair. That said, you know, we're sticking to what made the first one work. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be uncompromising. It's going to be, you know, fundamentally a, a horror game, I guess. Um, it's going to be management. Your favorite heroes are coming back. Um, but it needs to have its own identity. It needs to um, it needs to stand on its own. And, I, and ultimately, my goal as a as a creative director is to make a, a second game that belongs beside the first game on a shelf, not in front or behind. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I'm, I think my questions here are all a bit too specific, but but I was thinking like with that melodramatic horror of the first game, and you talked about the geopolitical climate. Could there be parallels to the climate horror that we're experiencing now, with going to the Arctic? Um. No, no, I, I'm a, I'm terrified of climate change. <laughs> yeah, you need some escape from that, I guess. Yeah, I can't. That's a, I want to focus on. Um, I want to focus on the personal. You know, I think we allude to a lot of that in the first game with the heroes, and then um, we we supplemented that with uh, these like one page silent comic strips that kind of explore the origin story of a lot of the, the I heroes. I love those. Yeah, I think I felt like they were really successful. They were fun to do. Um, Trudy Castle, who's our senior concept artist, did uh, a lot of the artwork on that, and I worked with her on the story. And uh, th those worked really well. And the game has always been about people and their flaws, uh, less so. I think, it, and I think that's that personal angle is kind of what makes horror more interesting. Yeah, I think you have to care about the people involved in the horrific experience for it to feel horrific to you, the viewer, the consumer, right? Yeah. Otherwise, it's at arm's length. So, um, really, from a broad stroke, we I'm doing a mountain because I want to go up and white as opposed to down and black. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so different color palette. Yeah, and if the horror of the first game is. Um, what will I find the further I go down? I th the horror in the second game is that feeling of like, I don't know if you're a kid. I mean, you grew up in Australia. You're underwater and you're trying to swim up before you run out of air. And that feeling of like, wait a second, I'm deeper than I thought. And you can see the caustics on the surface of the water and you feel like they should be closer. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced that hang time moment, but I did a lot of swimming as a kid and I'd dive to the deep end and hold my breath and then wait. And then I'd start trying to swim up and I'd realize for a second, like, whoa, like get that moment of actual fear where you're like, I, I should have broken the surface by now, you know? Yeah. 
So that's kind of more from a broad standpoint, the fear I want to tap into. Well, that's terrifying. <laughs> the, the thought of that. I have personally experienced that. It's like the 13th well. step, right? Like where you expect something to be there and it isn't there. Like, you know, you take the extra step at the top of the staircase or something. I, I love that moment. <laughs> I, th I think it's interesting as well. Another parallel with the light versus dark, uh, looking at uh, A24 and what they were doing with Hereditary and then Midsommar, where Midsommar is the horror movie in broad daylight. And, and there's no dirt on any of the characters at any point. It's a, it's a completely different way to explore the genre and it's... Which one do you like better? Midsummer is what? my favorite movie of the year. What? Better than Hereditary? Hereditary I loved, but it was too scary for me, I think. It's it one of the scariest like, horror... I put it up there, for sure. I think it is the scariest horror movie I've ever seen. I, I would almost agree with you. It, I was a grown-up when I saw it. I was younger when I saw Event Horizon, and I was like scared for two nights after that. So I think I got more scared from right. Event Horizon, but I can see Hereditary is a scarier film. Well, we were living uh, in a basement suite under a particularly abusive landlord oh. in that we had to eventually call the cops on him on our last night living there. Really? Yeah, we moved into this place. We saw it on a Tuesday and moved in on a Thursday. Holy cow. Um, but this place is great. But uh, <laughs> So we get like random stomps from upstairs and stuff. So we had that tension mm -hmm. when we watched Hereditary. The constant discomfort. Yeah, and I was I had that feeling before I started the movie, and so then it just sort of yeah exploded from there. What I really liked about Midsummer is I told you my favorite genre of horror is uh, occult horror. My favorite subgenre of that is pagan occult horror, and so I was just all for Midsummer. I was so excited um, from when they first mentioned it. Um, like the ritual as well on Netflix is. I love the ritual. It's really good. It does character development really, really well. Like the the alpha male leader guy. Yeah. Um, every shot he's in, the first thing he says is something he's gonna do for someone else, and then he's the one they kill first. Like he comes out of the tent, he's like, "I'll get the coffee on." Uh, they stop. He's like, "Let me check your leg." Like he's. Uh, they make a point of it every time. He's he's like outreaching. You know. Yeah. And then they ax him first. And the sense of, like, we have no leader anymore uh, is, like, palpable. I, I think I need movie. a rewatch. I, I didn't pick up on that when I watched it. I think that movie is almost a masterclass in character development, like, with the the, the close-knit thing. And they did a great job of, like, okay, here's our A guy. Here's our two strong Bs. And then they have the two Cs and the tension and the dynamics between them all is just fantastic. My wife hates horror. Oh, that's once, unfortunate. Yeah. <clears throat> once a year, though, on Halloween, I get to force her to watch a horror movie. So my time's almost up this year. It's going to be great. Uh, but I watched uh, Ritual with her last year. Yeah. And she actually really enjoyed it. So I, I, I feel like that was... It's it's definitely a little bit more approachable than Hereditary. I'm not going to try to show her Hereditary. Uh, yeah, I almost threw up a few times. Do you see Taking of Deborah Logan? I'm sorry about your nausea. <laughs> no no i haven't seen that one that's good it's good it's uh set up like a student um grad project on I'm gonna... parkinson's or alzheimer's this is a horror movie yeah What's the, taking, called, the taking of deborah logan of deborah logan okay yeah and uh so you have a, a conceit for the found footage because it's her grad project on alzheimer's but is it alzheimer's cool yeah is that good. is that one on uh netflix it used to be for quite a while. I don't know if it I is. I just anymore. got Shudder. Do you have Shudder? I do have Shudder. Maybe it's on there. I shudder at their catalog size sometimes, but... 
Oh, because it's small? It's small. Yeah, it's growing, but it's I know, small. and I keep paying every month because I want it to succeed. Yeah. Um, but I got to say, I the fantasy of what Shudder is in my mind is not And Suspiria is not even yet. on there. Uh, no, it's on Amazon Prime, though. Oh, cool. I have that. Nice. Yeah, you got to get Apple Arcade, Amazon Prime, Ugh. Netflix, gotta Shutter. Got to get cable. You got to get, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many services. God, you don't want to miss out on content, right? Oh, God, that's uh, my dream and my nightmare. Yeah, we're living in the uh, the age of content right now. Have you watched uh, The Wailing mm-hmm. on Shutter? Mm-hmm. I was just diving into the analysis of that afterwards because I loved that. I loved it. It made me really sad. Like right up until the the last maybe two or three minutes of the movie, I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Like the there's like 16 twists in a row. I know. Uh, Handmaiden, is that the other one? Oh, I haven't seen that one. It's pretty good. It's not horror so much as murder, mystery, twist and turn and sort of feudal Korea or something maybe. I can't remember. I saw it a little while cool. ago. Cool. Yeah, it's good. That does sound cool. It's sort of like, uh, have you watched Kingdom, the show? No. Right. Well, I, I feel like maybe we should list this stuff off air because right now we're just listing. We're just talking movies. about content. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So check out this list of, of content. Anyway, yeah. for anyone wondering, Kingdom is a <laughs> zombie apocalypse drama, but set in feudal Korea. Oh, really? Which is very cool. Season one's on Netflix. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's good fun if you like that yeah that kind of thing like period pieces period horror actually something that i thought of looking at the duck dungeon 2 trailer was terror the terror mm-hmm. have you watched the terror i have watched the terror i read the book the terror that's how cultured i am oh nice boom three years ago i read it so i'm so far ahead of this terror curve it's unbelievable very cool yeah i'm so well read <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll see a tunbuck in uh <laughs> in dd2 we'll see if, if we do i called it here first that's true imagine chris walking walking in uh, i'm cutting it now. to red hook tomorrow yeah. tomorrow like we got to get rid of the tone yeah back. i'm not proving this yahoo right <laughs> like the lost writers every time someone guessed something they're like yeah that's definitely not it lost is interesting because i think it perfectly exemplifies how um horror and mystery only work when they're asking more questions than they're answering well i loved it i don't think it was good but i loved it that's fair i was i was uh I think I was the exact right age for it as well. Right. Like, it was marketed at me. Can I ask you one more question about Dark Dungeon 2? Sure. Uh, so, one thing that's kept the first installment so fresh is the is the rich modding community. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be uh, as much support for modders in the second game? I can't. I you don't, can't say? I can't say because I don't know and I don't want to say something that I don't know about. I'll tell you that on the team, <clears throat> we post about the mods we see. We don't play any of them because it's the same way you can't read unsolicited right. submissions that come in if you're a book editor, because then if something you're working on cuts too close, then, you know, so we don't play any of them, but we have uh, reached out to a number of modders and uh, tried to support and, you know, um, spread the word about their work. And it's really exciting for us, especially for me, honestly, um, to see people adding content and emulating the style and some of it's just so good yeah it's a it's a real thrill so we don't we we love that community and we really appreciate and and respect everything that it brings to the longevity of the game and also just to the the heat to the embers of our of our fan base like that core fan base um like our subreddit is 
you know it's it's getting long in the tooth you know the game is like 2015 it's four years ago but our community is going strong on discord and reddit and and a big part of that is that you know the modding community is kind of in there making changes tweaks try this try that and so there's always a reason for people to fire it back up again and and so I don't know. I can't say anything about what's going to happen with with the sequel or how we're going to handle that. But um, I can I can definitely say with certainty that uh, as a team, we're, we're really uh, proud of these people and, and, and humbled by their efforts. And, and we really value it. Great. Well, uh, I think that that's that's uh, all I wanted to know and possibly all I'm going to get out of. Uh, I wish I could w- say more. You. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm going to have my ear to the ground about sure. that one. Well, thanks so much for coming and talking to me today, Chris. It's been an absolute honor for me. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate the chat. Uh, is there anything you, you'd like to to plug for our listeners on the way out? Um, well, you can follow the game on Twitter at Darkest Dungeon. Uh, you can follow me at Barassa Art. And I guess if you've ever bought or backed or pirated felt guilty and then bought the game i just want to say thanks and uh we're we're doing everything we can to create an experience that uh that follows that up and 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 delivers on the kind of uh the connection we've made with our with our audience so stay tuned thanks for listening to this episode of vanix van if you'd like a chance to win a free copy of Ducker's dungeon visit cavegoblins.com forward slash contest and enter the code REDHOOKGOBLIN to enter the draw. You can find me on Twitter at Doug Vandalay and the show at VanXVancast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser or iTunes. It's the best way for us to grow at no cost to you. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cavegoblins. I'm Doug Vandalay. See you next time. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.